folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace High above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. Just heard from Steve Kahn, very gifted guitar player. Uh, who uh, really actually started his career in the Southern California area uh, playing with a lot of the Jazz Crusaders, and uh, that's not even on the record uh, in most of his uh, bi- uh, biography. But uh, really, it's a treat now to bring in a guy who uh, George Marsh hit me to him for uh, a while back. I've been trying to dig deeper and deeper into the history of, our, of the musical lexicon of our society, how these things actually germinated uh, how they were pl- the seeds that were planted that led, led to things. And uh, as a 39-year-old broadcaster and journalist, uh, most of my generation as a Gen Xer and certainly the millennials and whatnot believe that somehow there was this cataclysmic explosion that started in 1967 and everything just germinated out of that in the summer of love. And then, all, you know, so all of a sudden, Sly Stone was the originator of funk music and the Grateful Dead just sort of happened to appear and... Janice and and Quicksilver and and Jefferson Airplane and that's just San Francisco that doesn't speak to the idea of the second cities the enter the multi multi uh tiered entertainment that was taking place on all levels Richard Pryor opening for Miles Davis uh you had uh so many of the old school cats uh, artists actors that would come in do skits musicians would play behind them and ultimately, it just had this organic nature that lent itself to incredible spontaneity, incredible creativity. And one of these thing, one of these uh, sort of uh, enclaves or communities, if you will, was in fact the uh, what we know we now know as the San Francisco Meme Troupe. And uh, I, what a high honor! I get a chance to talk to a cat today who was directly involved with this troupe. Bruce Barthol, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. How are you, brother? I'm doing all right. Uh, it's uh, quite pleasant out here where I am, in uh, outside of uh, Sebastopol, California. It's a beautiful place to be. I, you know, would you, uh, Bruce, would you consider yourself, or could you talk about in the the beatniks the were you a beatnik or did they come before you and if so who which beatniks did you get a chance to hang with um well let's see uh i i i was an apprentice beatnik which became a hippie (laughs) so i was a little (laughs) young young to be a beatnik so i did travel by bus with a friend of mine up to san francisco from LA where I was living and when I was 15 and we went and went to North beach and went to city lights and inhaled, you know, it was, yeah, I wanted to be a beatnik. <laughs> Who were you? I mean, cause I, you know, when I talked to uh, Marty Ballin, for instance, he, I mean, growing up, he was, he'd go downstairs into his parents' basement and, the King and Queen of Reno would be there and uh, or Lord Buckley would be riffing beh- and behind him would be a black jazz band. Uh, yeah. And I wanted you to talk about some of these seminal memories you had of this this uh, mixing of the beats with bebop jazzers, because 
they promoted the music in their own way. And I have a feeling that was one of the way, reasons you were motivated to want to be a beatnik. Well, uh, let me see. I was, um, let me say, I mean, uh, I liked jazz when I was growing up, or I thought I did, you know, but, um, and so, yes, I was influenced by that. Uh, the, uh, you know, the bebop scene itself was pretty harsh, <laughs> you know. What do you, the mean, idea what do you mean by get, Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, the sessions are notorious for having the new guy get up. He's trying to play with the band, and they switch the key to C sharp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I dig. I dig. You know, not real friendly. So. Well, they they wanted to see if you, they wanted to see if you could play. But I mean, the idea was: Did you grow up in the north in the in the Northern California area? Well, I was born in Berkeley, and then we moved to Pennsylvania when I was five. Wow. Then to L.A. when I was eight, and then I went back up to Berkeley to go to uh, university when I was 16. So Okay, so... I got back as fast as I could. So you went to... You were going to uh, San Francisco State, is that right? No, Cal, Berkeley. Cal, Berkeley. So you, okay, so you got to Cal, Berkeley, and that... So can you talk about, um, aside from the, whether you liked it or not, is there some, could you talk specifically about if, if it's true that the Beats helped expose white audiences to bebop language of music? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, but those... You know, the lines between the kinds of music I, I don't find very satisfying, you know, because I was basically a folky, right? Sure. I mean, I played the guitar, went to folk festivals. I couldn't get into jazz clubs, you know, when you're 15. Uh, so I was deep, uh, you know, into uh, all kinds of folk music, which as most of the San Francisco bands were, actually, I would say, you know, the, the Dead used to be a jug band and, uh, you know, like that. Which, which so I'm, I guess if you could talk specifically about an inspired, whether it was Ferlinghetti or whether it was Ginsburg, could you talk about an opportunity where you crossed paths with some of the beats and, and how it affected your point of view? Personal contact. Uh, let me, let me think. Or just, or just, well, or just see them or just see them in a context where they were, they were they were they were given a talk and how how it inspired you. Well, let's see. Did I ever hear a beatnik talk? <laughs> yes. I mean, I used to listen to uh, Kenneth Rexroth on record. Wow. You know the the beat poet and anarchist guy, and and Ginsburg was influential. Uh, you know, I was never a Kerouac fan for some reason. But, you know, I read him, too. Uh, I know why I didn't like Kerouac. He was like, he had no sense of history, you know. Really? He was out discovering. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, he was out discovering America when there was, you know, a lot going on. That was, um, that was the McCarthy era, right? Yep. And he, he just, like, no consciousness, I thought. That's my humble opinion 
I hope you don't get lots of calls having me. No, shocked. no, no, no. I mean, I, 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 but you have to help me too because I mean, I got to be honest with you, Bruce. I mean, I, at thirty nine, I mean, I, I, I've done a thousand primary source interviews, and that's how I've gotten educated. So I don't necessarily see that. I mean, as a poet, can you talk about his lack of consciousness? What, could you give an example of what you mean by that? Well. I mean, I haven't read him for years, but I remember when I was reading, I guess it was on the road. Uh, it, 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 it was like he was, there were, there was no politics in it, really. I mean, there was kind of, a, uh, you know, what became, there was a social critique in a way, but it wasn't very satisfying to me. You know, he was an egomaniac, I think, and then he turned out to be a Catholic drunk. You know about that? <laughs> no, I do he not. He became a big reactionary. He lived with his mother at the end of his life, and he was constantly drunk, and he was a real asshole and a reactionary. Go figure. You know, so, anyway, I'm not that fond of Kerouac. <laughs> but the, uh, so, so, so talk, let, let's get a little bit more into the, into the warm and fuzzy. I mean, wh- who, who did you get off on, and, and ha- who did you... Uh, because those guys were also very acceptable. Uh, I mean, accessible, accessible. Did you get, could you, yeah. talk, could you talk, even Lenny Bruce, I mean, can, can you talk about some sort of inspiring moment that puts you on your artistic journey? Well, let's see. Yeah, I, I did. A friend of mine had a Lenny Bruce album, and so uh, with some friends, I was in the eighth or ninth grade in junior high school, and we, and we had, I had a friend who worked in the office and so we made a tape of Lenny Bruce and we put him on the school uh, PA except <laughs> the guy it only it only played in the offices not in the classroom oh wow but, uh, but so there was an early <laughs> I guess I was uh, you know <laughs> Lenny Bruce was influential he was funny then too as before he got you know too screwed up by the government uh, is there a way to um, uh, talk to younger generations myself included about similarities and or differences between sort of the the sort of parallel universes that we're going through now uh, versus the, the end of the McCarthy era, are there overlaps that you can sort of see in the arc of history, or is it this is a completely different kind of thing? Well, let me see. I mean, it's pretty weird. <laughs> Which one? <I> right <laughs> now or then? Well, now. Now is weirder, I think. Why? Because we have this... Well... The, let's see, how can I say, you know, um, 50 years ago, uh, racism was more open, or let me, let me just, since before January, anyway, uh, the racism was more overt, you know, I mean, you know, just horrendous stuff that people would say, you know, black people were a different species, you know, just totally bizarre ignorant stuff right and, uh, that kind of has gone away although it's coming back now a little bit with Trump so that that's a that that's an improvement but uh, you know the institutional racism is still you know still there can you talk about uh, the can you talk about 
the over I've, I've spent several uh, shows talking to Richard Davis, the great bass player, and he was talking about overt versus covert racism. Was the overt racism a rallying cry for for folkies or or uh, beatniks in training to rally? I mean, as as opposed to the deception, which is so easily if thinly veiled if you are not really seeking or that in touch with your you know deep feeling cat. Uh, can you talk about the overt racism and how, it, if it was in fact an emboldening rallying cry for people because it was more in your face? Well, it had been for a hundred years too. You know, this right. was a continuation. I mean, when I was a kid and I looked at the South, it was like no hope. That place can never change, and and you know it did, you know, to to a great extent. So, but it looked it looked so grim. Back then, you know. On the other hand, this this racist stuff produced a huge backlash. You know, um, folkies generally were not racist; they were anti-racist. You know, for one thing, you're playing black music a lot, so that's a little weird. You know, to be a racist. Well, then you get uh, who's that idiot? Uh, right wing rock guy, Ted Nugent. There yeah. you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, go figure. Uh, it's insane. So it, you know, but the, I guess the thing that one thing that's that was true then, or at least a lot of people felt it, including me, was that even though the times were really grim, I mean, people talk about you know the summer of love in '67. Well, that summer of love, the death toll from Vietnam came daily you know it was a regular news report we lost 49 guys but we killed 4,000 you know that was the news reports they kept going on and on and if you were my age you had to do something you had to either go or not go you had to either resist or go along with it you know and that was a, a very motivational thing that a lot of people went through I mean you couldn't just Ignore it, right? You were going to do something. They were either going to put you in the army, or you were not going to go. Right. There was no draft. So there was no draft. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was. It wasn't a volunteer army. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, the volunteer army was very smart move by the powers that be mm-hmm. because you know we can go to war and it doesn't affect anybody, really. You know, something like two percent of the country are involved. That's in right. I think well, I think it's one percent. Yeah, it's it's nothing. One, even worse. And so they can, you know. I think a lot of those are economic volunteers, you know. And uh, you know, for a lot of people, the army's not a bad deal. And yes, you get maimed, killed, or wounded, you know. <laughs> but they can maintain these wars all over the globe. Without a lot of internal, I mean, where where is the peace movement now? We got like how many wars going on? At least three, you know. Well, I would argue. I mean, now. how much of it? Let's let's break it down because you know what, man. What you know what's missing from the protest movement is the protest music. <laughs> There's no musical component. Well, actually, I would dis- I would disagree. Go ahead. Actually, go ahead. What's 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 really different is the way music is heard. 
these days. That's exactly like that's I, that's I, exactly I, right. I'm the, the, constantly read, you know, during the well, it's still going on, but the Iraq War when it was, you know, newish, people were saying, "Where are the songs? Where are the songs?" And uh, you know, there were all tremendous amount written. Neil Young's webpage had something like 350 new anti-Iraq war songs. They were all, I wrote one, you know, Cakewalk to Baghdad, I wrote. Uh, but they aren't, you know, even though, for instance, Country Joe and the Fish was banned from AM radio because of the fixin' to die rag. Sure. Um, people heard it. They heard it on FM. It was banned, so people paid attention. You know, uh, I think, you know, these songs just were not heard, you know. Well, I mean, is it also, but isn't it also the, okay, so maybe it was banned on radio, but then because of the regionalism of radio, I mean, I interviewed Dan Healy, and he was working at Commercial Recorders, and they were, San Francisco, you'd make, make jingles for San Francisco. L.A. would make jingles for L.A., and the point is that yeah. may, maybe, maybe uh, they, that that Country Joe was banned from commercial radio, but you can bet at the Berkeley Community Theater or one of these Arabians, there were plenty of people coming out to see the music. And that's part of the issue now is that uh, yeah. a lot of peeps don't go. Music and in our culture does not have the same meaning. So you don't have cats coming out to see. You knew that Country Joe would... Would just just by the fact that, that they were being held down in mainstream, they'd get a lot of people to come out to support them publicly. So now you the issue. Yeah. Now, so what you're talking about is exactly spot on. It's the dissemination of the music. Neil Young can have all the protest music he wants. It to me, it just doesn't translate digitally. I mean, you can stream it, but you know, it's not like being at an it's not like being at a Black Panther event with uh, Herbie Hancock's band. I mean, it just doesn't. You, you just don't. It's not visceral. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, or the or the countless, uh, you know, bail funds we raised over the years for you know various uh, causes. Can you talk? Can you could you uh, talk about the, these 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 uh, causes or what one specific one that you did? Oh, let's see. Uh, well, there's one we played that uh, I just I have never sent for my FBI file, fearing I wouldn't have one. But I don't think that's a real fear. <laughs> Actually, because, um, let's see, when we played, Country Joe and the Fish played a benefit for the Bach Mai Hospital in Hanoi, North Vietnam, during the war. There's one. <laughs> um, that gotta got me on a list. And then <laughs> so, okay, but I mean, like, uh, what, about, what about for the local cats who were, uh, you know, pushing a message and were... Um, and we're jailed, or, or you know, something more, yeah. something more localized. Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, they kind of blend together in my mind. What did we do benefits for? Um, there were a bunch for people busted at anti-war demonstrations. Uh, uh, we raised some money for the Black Panthers. Uh, and uh, I guess my mind's a little foggy to give you. It's okay. No, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, when you say even noticed, (laughs) when when you say you raised them, what 
could you talk? Was this through the meme troop? How did you? What was the? What was the? Uh, uh, the uh, um, started with Country Joe and the Fish. You know, we did a lot of uh, benefits. Uh, you know, they were acquired. Right. A lot of people were getting. So uh, you were? I mean, uh, yeah, we I'm sorry. You were. You were actually. I'm. Sorry, you got to excuse me. You were. You were part of the band. Yeah, yeah, I was the bass player from uh, 66 to 68, the first three LPs. Unbelievable. So you were right in it, man. So, I mean, okay, I, I don't want to get jumped too far ahead because it's the Meme Troop. That was before Country Joe. No, Meme Troop was after. Really? I was in the Mime Troop, Meme Troop, Mime Troop from 76 to 2000 and something. And I occasionally do things with him now, but I was in for thirty-four years. <laughs> Let me ask you though: How when long? I, yeah, how long has how long was was the meme troop in existence before? Uh, when was when did, did it actually start? Well, it started in '59, so it was a beatnik organization when it began. Uh, and then went through its various development. It was founded by a guy named R.G. Davis, who was a radical and and wanted to... He put the mime troop into the parks, where we still are. There's a, some people don't probably don't know. Uh, it's a summer season uh, that we open in uh, Dolores Park in San Francisco, and it plays around the Bay Area and outside of the Bay Area, too, for free shows in the parks. And believe it or not, we've educated our audience so that an opening day in Dolores Park, we might make ten grand at the end of the show by going out with hats. Right? <laughs> so it's uh, kind of a thing. It's kind of like, you know, KPFA. It shouldn't be able to exist, right? <laughs> But it still does. Well, and, and it's, well, it's still breathing, uh, which could you... Um, so this is really fascinating. Talking to Bruce Barthol here on the Jake Feinberg Show, he's dropping a serious amount of knowledge, even though I'm really stretching out stuff that he hasn't thought about in a while. Um, can you talk about their what essentially their, their, their point of view was? Um, what attracted you to them? Before you joined in 76, I'm talking about really... That early '60s period. What? What? For my generation and others, what were they? What alternative point of view were they? Were they giving that was in these parks? Um. Well, it began. I mean, in '59. So that's pretty early in terms of you know things. But it was really beginning of counterculture, I would say. You know, and uh, let's see. What, well, it was sort of began. Uh, what's the French? Raise a potato bourgeois. Anyway, skewering the bourgeoisie. <laughs> wow. That was sort of the goal of the original mind group, you know, and it got, that was pretty uh, important. Before I had joined, they had been uh, harassed and busted and won an Obie, won a couple of Obie awards in New York. And for a San Francisco organization, that was, you know, something. Uh, and let me see, I, I'll tell you the times, the first time the Mime Troupe, which had been playing for a number of years, was reviewed by a San Francisco newspaper. It was a reprint of a review in the London Times. Mm. <sighs> you can 
dig that. You know, we were not we were not liked by the local authorities, right? And uh, and uh, but we were. You know, it, my group's always done very good work. You know, uh, I just want to be clear. This was the first review was before you ever joined it. Yeah, yeah. This is the old history of the troop. So and the so we've been around. For, yeah, the the. the, the been around for, for like you know eighteen years before I joined it. Um. So, uh, what? But it was a reprint, and what was that? Oh, okay. So here's my question. We, we the the. The, the the bottom line is this, um, the, the we weren't so out of whack. You have the situation now where the banksters uh, really run this country. You could say that essentially the mob in many of the urban centers, the mobsters ran ran a lot of the urban centers back in the '60s and '50s and and even into the '70s. Um, but you didn't have this income disparity that you have today. So the 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 the, the the skewering of the bourgeois, who were the bourgeois, and really were, was it this 1% that we're dealing with today that really is essentially holding on to all of its assets, refuses to give any of its liquid, liquidity back into society? Who was the bourgeois class that, that was being scourged? Well, that would have been actually probably 50% of the population, not the 1%. It was very repressive era, uh, era. You have to remember the fifties. Fifties were very black and white. You know, women really couldn't wear pants. You know what I'm saying? Interesting. This uh, is really was, this is important. Yeah. They so they couldn't. It was similar to the. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you. I don't remember my brother's girlfriend. This had been in the late fifties. She asked him to ask my mom whether it would be okay for her to wear pants to go to Disneyland. Right. I mean, uh, it was pretty, it was, you know, it was a very repressive era. I mean, racially, you know, with gender stuff. It was, you know, I, when I was walking home from junior high school and I played the clarinet for a while, I would be a little bit worried about getting jumped on the way home because I was carrying a musical instrument. Right. And, I mean, and, I don't know. And that would and that would and that would signify you were not a straight arrow. Yeah, or or I was a fag or something. Right. I have no idea what they, but you know. Well, was, okay. So let me. Let, this is so interesting, Bruce, because so it was repressive, right? But I also I interviewed Merle Haggard, rest in peace. That cat went to the hole twelve times. He was still making hit records. So was it even though it might have been repressive? from the judicial system was it as punitive as it is today because you have it's a full-on for-profit prison system now where you're putting peeps away i mean the point is that that merle haggard went to the hole in san quentin he was arrested 12 times obviously reagan expunged him but it's repress it's repressive but you're looking at people now who for a couple of joints they're done for life you're done for life yeah well that's, you know, I think it was worse then, actually. Really? Because, I mean... Really? Uh, yeah, it was. Wow. Smoking pot when I started was a felony. You know, you could, you could go, even in California, you could go away for years for a joint. One joint? Yeah. Then that, you know, it changed. They took it down from being a felony to a, you know, a misdemeanor. You could still go to jail, but, you know... Uh, and, uh, you know, but that was part of Nixon, you know, 
Nixon wanted to attack hippies and black people, so he really started the war on drugs to do that. And it was pretty successful. <laughs> when you uh, look at the first, yeah. When you when you, so going back to the demagoguery, obviously there was that uh, sort of at least in our history books, there's that moment where. McCarthy's testifying in front of a panel and someone says, do you not have any decency? You know, have you no shame? Have you no shame? And it's like that, that in our history books seems to claim that it broke the camel's back. And like you brought up a very, very, very interesting point because in the nineties, like I just wrote this out yesterday in high school, going through college, through the late 90s, I, I, I was naive enough to think that we were living through a post-racial society. And now what we're seeing <laughs> in 2017 is um, some the cultural biases are in some ways even more deeply rooted than maybe they were back in the 50s. I mean, it's, 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 it's weirder and potentially much more nefarious now. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I think it was worse in the 50s. I mean, you know, you had segregation was the law of the land still, basically. You know, schools had not been desegregated mostly. Uh, I'm talking about like 59, right? Sure. And, uh, you know, there was a, there were lynchings still. I remember reading about a lynching. Uh, my, my dad was uh, a professor in we lived in Madrid for six months in 1959, and I remember we were somewhere in Spain. We got a copy of the Herald Tribune or the Stars and Stripes, right, the Army paper, which you could get. And and I, I get the paper, and I look at it, and there was a lynching in fucking Mississippi or some place like that. And I said to my dad, why don't we A-bomb the South, Dad? <laughs> my father said, well, a lot of Negroes live there. <laughs> And some, and you know what, I mean, there, well, I mean, you can say, you know, uh, Charlie Persip, the great drummer, still refers to himself as a Negro, but I know what you're getting at. Yeah. I just say to myself um, that, so segregation, it was, it was still a segregated time, um, and, what, and the racism was more overt. I mean, it's true, we just had these assholes in, you know, Charlottesville, um, uh, you know, but I thought that was really great that they marched with their fucking swastikas and clan robes. You can see who they are, and that really doesn't go down real well. You know, most well, people it, don't it, like it, that. That's that's a good point. I would also argue, though, that um, uh, that you look. I mean, I've done a bunch of interviews, mostly with my show. Basically, started with Afro jazzers, and you know, I've interviewed some cats and. You know, they'll talk about today what's uh, well, let me just read you the, the quote if I can bring it up here. It's just it's um, because I, I think there's the truth is somewhere in between. But he says, uh, see, this is from M. Tume, who was a, a conguero. Actually, was Jimmy Heath's son. And uh, and uh, let me um, bring this up here. Yeah, so uh, here we go. As a black man, this is him talking about a month, about two months ago. He said, "As a black man in America, there's nothing new about what happened to Philandro Castillo. That was the the guy who was uh, shot by the cop when he was trying to get his 
show yeah. him his firearm. The only thing that's new about white cops getting off when they kill somebody black is that even having a film of it doesn't make a difference. Rodney King, <laughs> Rodney King, you saw the footage and those guys got off. Now we see white cops that can murder you in cold blood on film and white people, jurors, won't convict a white cop for killing a black person. We saw Eric Garner in New York. That's on tape. What's also on tape is that a cop unit that snatches a guy for selling one-off cigarettes. The head of that unit is a black woman sergeant. Footage and film no longer means anything. That's where America is. They will not convict a white cop. To get away from that, you need to have independent... Okay, so he goes on to what could be solutions. And then he talks about, obviously, you know, what was so great is that Charles Neville was talking about the fact to me the other day in the 60s, cocaine was the drug of choice among musicians. And I thought it was... That was in this mainly in the 70s. He's like, yeah, that's when it started affecting white America. That's when you started to hear about it, okay? So uh, basically what he was saying with, with the opioid crisis now, well, it's, a, it's affecting all these white cats, so they have to fund it. You know, they have to get these programs yeah, to, you know. So, right. so, yeah. so I mean, the, the lynchings, okay, that the, the, the you'd get, you'd wind up seeing these horrific pictures in Mississippi. Um, the Klan has been on, around forever and so now it's like even with film footage you can't there's no there's no justice for all there's no equal justice under the law still uh that's yeah i'd say that's basically true i would point out a white cop just did get uh, sentenced tried and found convicted for shooting a black guy and which one was this that's one I forget which one. Uh, now, there are so many, you know, so many black people are murdered by the cops. You know, it's hard to keep the, all the names straight. But he was sent, I, uh, I just read it the other day. I did. I'll look it up. But I would say that the, uh, you know, the, the the fact that they're tried is a step forward, even if they're not convicted. I mean, you, this is a really long process been going on, you know, for hundreds of years, the race thing in this country. And I actually think it's, it's improved over when I was a kid. I would just say also, the the thing is that Barry Goldwater didn't become president, but Donald Trump is president. So he's giving a a bugle. That's the difference is he's giving a bugle horn to these to these people, to, the, to these clan members or, you know, whatever they are, you know, and that to me is the McCarthy didn't win. Uh, Goldwater didn't win. Uh, and so you're looking at, you know, on top of the fact that, you know, Trump is just honestly completely mentally ill. Uh, you know, it yeah. just, you know, I mean, that just throws a whole other thing into it. But, you know, can you talk, you know, Bruce, can you talk about the first time that you cross paths with uh with bill graham and the mime troop uh because i am i've been i'm trying to stretch back the lineage of like i I said in my intro sly stone was not the originator of funk it was johnny talbot um there would have been no grateful dead without the merry pranksters and in some cases probably uh um yeah, like the mime troupe, uh, people like that, the beats. So I'm trying to get at this idea of, of Bill Graham in the in the meme troupe or the mime troupe, uh, his involvement and, you know, ultimately how the he built his apparatus to, f- to what it became so that you were playing his venues at the Fillmore and whatnot. Yeah, uh, well, 
Graham was in the mime troupe before I was, right? He was earlier than me, but he was a financial guy. Uh, and uh, the mime troupe got busted in Canada. Uh, and there was a benefit put on. And that was the first gig he put on. It was, I think, where was it? Some hall in San Francisco. I don't remember the name of. And it was a huge success. There was this. Who knew there was this huge latent population of future hippies, basically, right? And it was a big success, and I think the uh, cash registers clicked around in, in Graham's mind, and he started, then he became a promoter, you know? And I must say, the early days at the Fillmore were really great, you know, because the bills were so mixed, it was so eclectic, and you could do it in those days. Like, I played one gig, and I think it was Bolasete Trio, right? <laughs> Brazilian acoustic bossa nova. I did, right? yep. Country Joe, and the, Country Joe and the Fish, and then the Sam and Dave Review. Unbelievable. That's eclectic, right? And when Bolasete played, the whole audience sat on the floor and listened. When Country Joe and the Fish played, you know, everybody hippie danced, <laughs> And then when the when the Sam and Dave played, everybody soul danced, you know. And I know when I when I fled the country because of the draft at the end of '68 and went to London, there was a concert with the Who and Chuck Berry, and there was fighting in the audience because Who fans and Chuck Berry fans didn't get along. Ah, that was kind of a drag. Why did that? That's so you're talking about the original Fillmore on Geary Street, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean because I it was like it was like Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Tiny Tim and Little Anthony and the Imperials, stuff like that. I mean it was just you everywhere, you know. Yeah. And and then obviously yeah. um so but was Graham And actually Graham, it was also the family dog, Chet Helm, sure. the Avalon Ballroom. And in the early days you could buy a ticket at the Avalon and use it at the Fillmore that night. I love it. Same with the Fillmore. You could buy a ticket at the Fillmore and use it at the Avalon. Because everybody, there were like three bands, there'd be a total of six sets, right? So you could watch everybody and run over to the Avalon and catch that thing too. That went away, and then Graham actually kind of drove the family dog out of business, I think. And so then he became the rock czar of San Francisco. Could you talk about Graham before he became the rock czar? Obviously, he he figured out how to create, how to monetize that scene. But was he actually like the meme, the mime troupe? In essence, I mean, could you paint the picture of what their? I mean, they clearly weren't, you know, playing, you know psychedelic folk music like you were with Country Joe, or they weren't playing music. What were they doing? <clears throat> they were doing, um, well, uh, 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 they were doing a bunch of different things. One is they did a lot of Commedia dell'arte, which is an old Italian street theater characters. Uh, it's very effective out of doors. Playing out of doors is a different world than playing on stage, you know. Well, I'd like you to deal with sirens, sirens, drunks, and psychotics. You know, <laughs> get the show going. So, I mean, can you? What, what, what were these street scenes? I mean, these were like people coming up and at ice cream parlors and singing to beautiful women. I mean, what what did what were you, what what did these Italian scenes look like? 
Oh, okay. Uh, well, there are these stock characters in Commedia dell'arte. There's the miser, there's the drunk, there's the professor, there's the servant girl who actually runs everything. There are the two lovers, you know. And these are all hysterically funny characters, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, some of them are classic. I think the Minecraft did Lope de Vega, Commedia. Uh, they would be actually um, skewering greed and propriety. That's what that's what uh, Commedia does. Could you give any, Could you give a couple of uh, prose or lines that they so because it, the the verbiage was different back then too. How would they do that? Was it covert or was it overt? <laughs> uh, well, given that usually you know these commedias were set somewhere in Italy, you know, hundreds of years ago, you could get away with a lot because um, you know if uh, uh, you know. If the terrible, oh, the Capitano, he was a bad guy. He's the militarist. If the Capitano seemed to be Lyndon Johnson, that was fine. You know what I mean? Uh, and I, I really can't recite you the scripts, but uh, they were funny and a little body. Nothing like today, you know, a little body and uh, uh, daring. What, what uh, how did I guess what I'm trying to say is how did it resonate with contemporary American cats at that time like yourself how how how, how did it, how how was it relevant to what was going on at that time well it's uh, um, uh, it, it you know one thing that political theater can do is and it was a political theater and still is, but uh, is you put you can put the society up on stage and tear it apart, you know, comment on it, have it do things. And it resonated because of the, uh, it was really uh, ahead of and right on time with the era and the feelings of people who didn't want to put up with this restrictive, pointless, uh, you know, morality laws and, uh, uh, you know, it was illegal to be homosexual, right? <laughs> so you would go to jail uh, for being, a, would, for being a homo. You'd go to jail. Yeah. What they were raiding gay bars, right? But they were raiding gay bars and what was the sentencing? I mean, months or years? I mean, this is <clears throat> actually, I don't know, but they certainly hauled him off to jail. Wow. For some reason, and they, you know, so it is, you know, the Stonewall, the famous Stonewall riots in New York. That wasn't until '69, I think, right? Something like that. Hmm. And because the cops are going there to raid the gay bar and haul and haul them off to jail, you know, it was illegal. So, you know, it, 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 I, I keep saying it was a pretty repressive. That's why long hair, man, you got so much crap for long hair. I got beaten twice in one year for having long hair, you know? Um, hmm. No, once for being white in the film artist. But the other was the horrible redneck kids up in Napa, you know. Uh, they really wanted to kill me or something. Did, did, um, 
were you hanging around with David Nelson and Garcia and Peter Album and those cats? Well, I knew Peter kind of well, and the others I didn't know. I was I was 18 when I started with Country Joe and the Fish and a bit shy, so I didn't, like, you know, just walk into scenes and claim my space. No, I totally, but I'm saying, like, Melton was doing jug, like you talk about the, the Dead Were a Jug Band, Melton was doing jug band music with Lester Chambers and, and Taj in L.A. What were you doing in the early 60s? Well, that's you... a little bit of an exaggeration, having... Uh, Barry and I went to high school together, you know, so. Well, I mean, we were I mean Barry was down at, he was hanging with the, he was down at the Ash Grove. You're saying that he didn't, he wasn't doing that, that stuff with Taj? and no, he was. Well, Maxie, you know what? I left L.A. before Barry, because I got out of school early. So I don't know, really, he, 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 I'm not calling him a liar, but he was not hanging at the Ash Grove much when I knew him. We hung other places. You know, we were in that Grand High, I mean, yeah, the Grand High Pope Club, you know. Wow. So, 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 so you, you took off, and how did you get your folk chops and your, how did you get your, what, what were you doing up in the, in the Berkeley area in that early 60s period before you joined Country Joe? Well, let me see. I went up to Berkeley in 64 to go to Cal, and uh, you may remember that was the fall semester of the free speech movement. I, I, I was I was born I was born in seventy eight, so it's all before my time. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, the free <laughs> speech movement was like the first real student, you know, again, the first student strike that I'm aware of since like the thirties or something. And it was, um, you know, it was in a different era. You know, we were very polite we student rebels. Um, there was never a riot, you know. They kept accusing us of rioting, but we were nonviolent, and we were respectful, you know, except we were shutting things down. But, you know, we didn't, there was no trashing of stuff. There were, well, we got attacked by, like, the, the frat rats and uh, a couple of times at demonstrations there, but... Um, it was, uh, that was quite an event, and, and it was, uh, you know, I would say it was, you know, one thing it did was it sure brought a lot of radicals to Berkeley. <laughs> That's why I went back to Berkeley in part because it was where things were going on. You know, I was, you know, I joined Congress of Racial Equality Corps when I was uh, 14, I think, you know, uh, just because... You know, they were murdering people in the South, and I never did. I wasn't, my parents weren't racist, you know, so I never, I just never understood it, you know. I just thought it was bizarre and horrible. And so I, you know, wanted to, you know, contribute to the solution. So that's one reason I, I went to Berkeley, went back, you know, my hometown. I always, you know, Berkeley was the one place when I was a kid where you could see foreign cars and guys with beards. <laughs> so, I mean, did you... That's how we're... Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm just trying to get at this idea, like, uh, were you playing, like, uh, uh, the... Like, did, did you... When did you first pick up... Were you playing a washtub bass? Uh, I mean, when, did you... Did you... Well, actually, no, I was playing mostly guitar. I, you know, I also played auto harp. You know, a little mandolin, harmonica, but mostly guitar. 
And then um, after uh, I, I, I went to Cal for a year and a half, and then I was going to drop out for a year because I was really tired of going to school. I wanted to do something else. So I, I withdrew, actually in good standing. And uh, then I worked for the phone company to, to make money to go travel. The longest three months of my life working for the phone company, I'll tell you. And uh, then during that time, Country Joe and the Fish started, you know. So, and I, I became a bass player because I was listening to Bach, Joseph Spence, and the Birds. And they all had interesting bass things going on. So I rented a bass and, and uh, you know, and Country Joe and the Fish got an electric bass. Actually, I rented it first. Was it a, was it, was it a Fender bass or was it an actual electric bass? It was, a, it, it, was a, it was a bass guitar of a brand that no longer exists. And I remember... The little pickups were screws, right? And and I would have to, they'd fall out. And so I'd be on stage looking around and screw that thing back in. Wow. Keep playing. Wow. I mean, can you... And I just yeah. want to remark that he doesn't think he ever heard himself singing, you know, for, for that first year. <laughs> the sound was so terrible, basically, you know, everywhere. I was going to say... Um... Uh, the, the other cats, I mean, you were, I mean, so you basically had a natural time feel. It wasn't like you were, you had no academic training at all and you were just learning to groove on your own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had guitar lessons when I was 14 for a while and that was about it. And then I just played, you know, that's what you did and played regularly a lot, you know, with friends or alone or, you know. There was one folk music show on in L.A. in like 63, I think, and that was a two-hour show on an FM station. That's where I first heard Bob Dylan, and I went down to the White Front, which had a record section. I said, do you have anything by this guy, Bob Dylan, D-I-L-L-O-N? <laughs> <I said. laughs> you got Matt Dylan from Gunsmoke, you know? And the guy knew. He said, "No, oh, it's still a D.Y. You know, it's so, D.Y. Yeah, no, but I mean, you, you must, did, so could you talk about, I mean, this is so fascinating, talking to Bruce Barthol here, who cooking the groove from with Country Joe from 65 to 68. I just, I just called Country Joe, and he, uh, he just said he was all about doing an interview, and now he's running away from me now, which is really interesting, but um uh, um, what about your encounters with the Merry Pranksters? Well, you know, they were also, they were gone, I think, actually, by 66. I don't think, the, were the Pranksters still running then? They were just a little early. I did go to the Trips Festival. Can you talk about, at, can you talk about uh, that? At, where, where, what was that, Muir Beach? No, no, the Trips Festival, at least, it might have been the second one was at the Fillmore and the dead played and maybe I forget who else anyway I remember it was like this other world uh, you know there wasn't even that much long hair yet right, right. The 65 and 6 early 66 65 for sure 
And uh, I walked in, and the sound was, like, overwhelming, and people, you know, just moving as they wanted to. <laughs> and then a bunch of guys, there were these huge, giant speakers on the stage. <laughs> Enough of guys were lying in them. <laughs> wow. Okay, so they've been deaf while now but uh yeah it was really quite a scene very liberated you know were you were, were there were there were there two buckets of kool-aid one that was so clean and one that was full of liquid acid i was unaware of it right Whatever that bucket was i didn't see it you know right so but as far as Keezy is concerned um what would you contribute to his legacy of that of that time what is his legacy to that time period obviously you're 100 percent correct i mean ken babs i've done a few interviews and by 60 by 67 they he openly told me they were crawling underneath the concrete to get away from the masses uh it was getting too intense and then eventually they all kind of bolted up to the oregon area but yeah um were they how did they fit into the whole equation in your mind being that you we're really pretty locked in by, by that, you know, you moved up in 64, but you were starting to contribute to the entire vocabulary by 65. Yeah. Or, or 66, I would say that's when I joined country doing the fish alone. I was contributing. I was on strike at Cal and, uh, you know, and we haven't yet talked about the Vietnam war, you know, which gained in prominence through that period too. Um, but I, you know, uh, I didn't know Keezy. I didn't really know the Merry Pranksters. They were all older, right? They were all like ten, at least 10 years older than me, mostly. So um, they were beatniks, birthing the hippies, I would say. But yeah, that's pretty good. They were beatniks who were birthing the hippies. Right, and then they... Uh, but the Trips Festival beyond... I mean, it, in today's culture... It would be like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to this place where there's all this LSD or all this ecstasy and we're going to all get blissed out. And there was the Trips Festival was what was the social component? Because I know there was the there was a Trips Festival in Watts. Uh, there was the Muir Beach ones. Um, and so I'm just curious about the social consciousness context, at least what you aside from the the melding of psychedelics and guitars and the kind of feedback and reverb and sort of anguish noise in different world. Can you talk about the point of view or what they were trying to really get across at that trips festival? Um, I basically it was liberation. I would say that was it. You know, it wasn't that overtly political except that it was completely political because they were, you know, whacking at the foundations of the society in some ways. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that's answering your question. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, essentially, like, you walked out of there. I mean, liberate, I get liberated every day doing, talking to you guys and, and gaining more information for myself. So what was liberating about it for you? Um, well, the idea that there could be a big hall filled with people who were something like me, there you go. That's what it, it was also, it was like 
well, there's, I'm not alone. That was a big thing for a number of years as the movement of the counterculture. There are more and more, you know, various kind of people who are not going along with things. They were, you know, uh, and it, I remember it would have been in 67, I think, driving over from Berkeley to San Francisco on the Bay Bridge, mm-hmm. right? Yep. To an anti-war den. There's a big anti-war march going on that was going to go on that day. And usually when you're driving around in those days, you'd regularly, people would flip you off or, you know, yell at you for having long hair. Even in that area, it wasn't so common. Outside of the Bay Area, man, it was hell. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, and we're driving across the Bay Bridge, and I look around at the other cars, and they're freaking all going to the demonstration. It was astounding. You know, actually, there's enough of us to, like, fill up the Bay Bridge, go into an anti-war demonstration. That was really amazing to me. Mm. And then there were something like 100,000 people at that demonstration in San Francisco. And that was one of the first times that that the anti-war marches were not attacked by soldiers and off-duty soldiers. That was a regular feature back of the line would get these guys coming up and attacking people this is really important this is i mean yeah this is is there wow i mean and and there wasn't i mean to be clear there wasn't like um you felt like you were alone because there weren't so many disseminators of information you didn't have cable news you had three channels you had newspapers was i mean there you felt like you weren't alone because for a long time, all you would hear is pro-America, patriotism, hate the hippies, hate the long hair, hate the gays. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, except, that, you know, this is right when there started to be hippies and long hair and stuff. So that the, uh, uh, you know, it was just so rigid. I mean, like during the free speech movement, there was when it began with surrounding a police car which was they didn't bring cop cars on campus that really wasn't done to arrest a guy who was sitting at a table handing out information so we stopped the being able to take him out of the campus and there's that sitting around the car last for like 36 hours maybe more and but people would speak to the crowd on the top of the car right but they'd take their shoes off so they wouldn't damage it. That was that era. <laughs> right. I did. I did. I, yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Yeah, it was. And, and these very sophisticated debates, you know, going on, you know, philosophy quotes, uh, you know, Thoreau said, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, actually there were people getting up there arguing against it, too. You know, it was actually, you know, uh, quite vibrant. And, yeah, uh, so you had these like almost public debates that you would find in the, uh, in the bazaars, uh, uh, in, in Greek and Roman times in, in some respect. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is fascinating. And there, um, and now you have, uh, you know, you have anti-fascists versus fascists now busting canisters over each other's heads now in Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I do agree it's, it's hard to let Nazis march. I, I don't, you know, I, I think violence is really risky 
to engage in. On the other hand, I don't think Nazis should march. So I'm kind of, you know, in sympathy with the... I mean, I am an anti-fascist, so, you know. No, I'm with you. Um, I mean, listen, I I just interviewed Charles Neville over the weekend, and he he just sent me this poster. It says... uh, he said it's from 1955. He said no. This is was on a this was on a, a board. This was on a, a wall in New Orleans. Uh, he said notice apostrophe stop. Help save the youth of America. Don't buy Negro records. <laughs> yeah. If you want, there's a great book called there's a book called Rhythm Riots and Revolution. You know mm-hmm. all about how Negro music is ruining white kids. It says the screaming. <laughs> if if you don't want to, if you don't want to serve Negroes in your place of business, then do not have Negro records on your jukebox or listen to Negro records on the radio. The screaming, idiotic words and savage music of these records are undermining the morals of our white youth in America. That was 1955. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- and it was all true. <laughs> all completely true they were right <laughs> when you look back on it um and we're you know we've been cooking here for 60 we're gonna have to do part two only dedicated to your work in the mime troop which started in 76 but if you could just give some perspective looking back on it um some people feel i've talked to a lot of people now uh enough cats that from your generation or a little bit before who wonder was it a revolution for revolution's sake, or was it actually a prudent thing? How do you come down on that? Well, you know, the problem with the hippie movement, if we can even call it that, is that, you know, there were no, it was real unclear what it was. <laughs> you know, you could be anything right. and be a hippie, which was like the plus and the minus of it. Uh, you know, you, you, nobody screened you when you decided to become a hippie, you know, so all kinds of people eventually were hippies. But early on, it was early on, it was such a conscious choice to protest with how you look. You know, it was I remember when I fled to England in 68, I was I was standing on the King's Road looking at the young Tories march, right? Right. And a bunch of them had long hair. This so offended me. I started yelling, get your, get a haircut, get a job. You know, <laughs> just the idea that young conservatives would have long hair was just, not a clan has fucking long hair, you know? So I guess we won that one. <laughs> well, I, I, this is so, so what, so tell me, in looking back on it something i mean it's a mixed bag would you say have we have we come so far i mean will what i'm i guess here's the other thing where the rubber meets the road for me is is um you know what is the if if it have we reached a point do you feel where uh Somebody now, with the help of maybe a 20% electoral base who believes in, in complete fake news, um, do, does one, is, are, people, are people now above the law? Is, is this going to be the proof? Because my, my fear, or what I feel is coming, is that um, 
I don't know if Trump. I don't. I don't know if Mueller will indict Trump, but I think that Mueller might wind up getting some some of his family, and and I uh, want and I think to myself, okay, so, um, you know, if I guess let me just ask you this: if the rule of law falls or or see, is seen as uh, not a factor anymore, um, where does that leave us? <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't think it's that bad. For one thing, Trump is less and less popular. He's not more and I don't more believe popular. The, I don't believe the polls, man. I don't believe them. And also, there's no it, against a generic candidate, I'm sure he is. But when you put somebody up there and they start to sling mud at him, all of a sudden it's just a 40-40 cut. I mean, really, there's a lot of people that don't open their mouths that are pretty culturally biased. Anyway, go ahead. I don't want to cut you yeah. off. Well, uh, you know, Trump won the white vote. You know, Trump won. Trump, Trump won the poor vote, the white vote, the poor white vote, and he won the rich white vote. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. You know, I once took a poll, some newspaper thing, like, "Who are your politics like?" in some stupid ass magazine, right? So I go through it, and at the end, I look to see where my score puts me, and it put me with. Black people who hadn't graduated from college. That's right where that's school. that's right where that's right where you should be. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, but I, I want to. But beyond the polls and the unpopularity, why is it not as bad? Because we are living in a hyper-reflexive media time. So why is, in your mind, is it not that bad? Tell me. Well, you know, the Nazis try to march and they can't. Too many people show up. You mean in you, San, know, you mean in San Francisco, in San Francisco, right, or Boston? In Berkeley and in Charlottesville and everywhere. Well, they marched. I mean, they marched. They they are outnumbered, but they marched in Charlottesville and they killed somebody. Yeah, well, you know, the Nazis have always marched somewhere. The famous one in Skokie, right? I love that Chicago. movie so much. Yeah. Oh God, I love that film. Yeah, uh, and so. Um, I, I think they breed greater resistance, actually. That people actually don't, even white people, <laughs> don't really like Nazis. You know, mostly. I, Nazi fans would have to be pretty small percentage of the country. You know, if 20% are stone reactionaries, you know, you'll never be able to do anything with only... Half of those people like Nazis. You know what I'm saying? Nazis is a bad image. Well, but... Um, so I think if they march and they get associated with Trump, you know, there's that's probably good, in a sense. Yeah, but you... I mean, I guess... Uh, okay, Nixon knew, uh, you know, Ford was going to pardon him and, and Nixon was going to instead of you know uh he, and then he resigned and then he left i don't think i think to extract trump from the white house there's going to be a lot of bloodshed because his base is angry and whether they are uh affiliated neo-nazis or not they want a war i listen to hate radio all day long i listen i have my daughters listen to hate radio all day long because i want them to know that this is what they are up against it is the multi-ethnics I am Jewish. My wife is Taiwanese. So it's our, it's our, it's the multi-ethnics versus Sharia Christian law. 
And that's the new war. That's the soul yeah. of this country. So just tell well, yeah. going, it. I think it's been going on forever, basically. I think war. you may, I think you're right. I, I think that I just I just want to know if if the rule if if somebody proves that they're above the law, how bad is that? I mean, you could see he, he McCain made a, a statement. He said uh, after Arpaio, it was kind of like saying to Trump, this was your one get out of jail free card. Don't even try to pardon people. If they get if they get uh, charged with crimes by Mueller, and he's going to do it anyway. I remember, you know, Nixon is instructive because, you know, Nixon won so overwhelmingly in '72. You know, that was you know McCovern just got his ass kicked. You know, and uh, um, so he in '72 he was very popular, and went and you know. Two years later, he was not popular. Two, and, and three years later, he was gone, right? Right. Or something like that. And so things do change. Uh, what somebody said, who was it? I think Trotsky, in the history of the Russian Revolution, or maybe it was the Tsar and the Tsarina. He was a real good writer, by the way. Um, anyway, he said that the Tsar seemed impregnable in 1914 you know he almost fell in 1905 and those days were over everybody thought you know in 1914 no way he could get rid of the czar and he was gone in three years things do change you know um and so have we reached so that? i yeah. think actually very weak i think he's very weak you know i've never seen yeah. even with nixon i've never seen i mean if you check out late night TV, there is not one defender. You know, every all those comedy shows, they seemingly all start out with kick Trump in the ass for the first couple of minutes. You know that that's different. Yeah, I, I you know, part of part of it is also though in my mind that I, I don't know what you were talking the, before you said there was more fifty percent. You know, we have this 1% now. The thing that disturbs yeah. me is that at the grassroots, the people that are big, the biggest Trump supporters don't realize that he doesn't have their best interests in mind at all and has no ways to help them. And so it's hard for me to see a really, unfortunately, in this time that we live with sat saturation of media, it doesn't seem like there'll be a relenting. If, if you know, if you have 15 or 20% of people staunchly supporting somebody who could care less about them and and b they believe in hook line and sinker it, it, you know especially somebody like trump who's mentally ill it's going to be hard to extract him uh period he's not going to go down he's not going to i hope you're right i really hope you're right but i i fear that there's a reckoning coming and uh i just don't also see part of my show is about leadership and i don't see any, I don't see impeachment hearings being taken up in the House, even if he breaks the law. Or you know, I, I just see it being watered down. And again, you've seen this a lot longer. And I, I think that some of the stuff you talked about, how repressive things have been, were, have been enlightening. Um, but at the same time, we were a grossly rich country at that time. And when Kennedy came into office, anyone that made over a hundred thousand dollars was paying ninety cents on the dollar for any dollar over that. 
So now we're just yeah. now we're yeah. now we're broke. And the really the what what I point what I look at and I say, um, what you're really dealing with the the rage is is despair and 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 no hope. And I'm not talking about the people that are dealing with what's going on in Houston. I'm talking about all these swaths of the, our country yeah. in these towns that have been uh, decimated. They feel left behind and they have no way of getting out of it. And they see a guy like Trump who went bankrupt and rebounded and came back and they don't realize that he has all these resources and he's probably been doing illegal shit with, with criminals in Russia for his whole life. And yet they look, yeah. at, they look at their own situation and they say, I have no hope and I am raging. And that's the, that's the thing well, I look at. I, I think you're, you're, I think you're overgeneralizing. Like you got to keep in mind mm -hmm. that like in some West Virginia County, right. Uh, had gone for Obama and then went for Trump. That's more complicated than just a bunch of assholes, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I dig, I, I dig. I, I dig. had, you know, um, now I think there are, there is a group that's just a bunch of assholes, and that's basically the people who have a religious, uh, they're religious fanatics. These are the, you know, even some some big portion of the evangelicals, you know, these harsh Christians who forgive a philandering pervert, right? But because in their worldview, which is that God, there's some figure in the Bible who's necessary to come back before we get to Armageddon and the rapture and that bullshit. Yeah, you're right. right? There's a guy who is a bad guy, but he brings forth this part of the thing to bring the four horsemen or however it goes. Uh, and uh, they think that's Trump. They think that's Trump. So he's sent by God. That's why they're impervious to any argument, any bit of logic, but they're, they're not the, they're not all the Trump voters. There may be half of them. Right. Those are the people who you just can't reach. The other people are just people who are, you know, I had a hard time voting for Clinton. You know, me too. She was me too. Me too. Terrible. Me too. Uh, but I, I did. But I did check. You know, the I, I did check the box for her, though. I did, too, just because I knew whatever was going on, having a big popular vote would be better than not. Now, I was right, you know, because she did win the election. So um, now, in a way, one thing I said that really pisses some people off, I say, well, one good thing about Trump getting elected is at least we don't have Hillary. <laughs> well, and, and, and Sorry, yeah, I, I mean, I, I you know, and, and, and you know, where wars would we, be, we, would we be in with Clinton? He loved wars. Well, and, and, you know? and I just I look at it and I say sometimes uh, these things can be like you said, um, the, the the biggest blessings, uh, you know, in the world because it actually it's a latent thing. But but people like Trump and sort of his his bigoted point of view and his just sort of outlandish off the cuff statements and his blatant flaunting of the law. Uh, it actually raises awareness amongst groups that really were sort of ebbing and flowing, just sort of ebbed for a while. So you could see this potentially if it gets at crazy enough where people are saying this is absolutely, um, you know, uh, the, 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 over time, 
if how exhausted people will be in two and a half, three years, four years, and all of a sudden you have these, you know, a serious congealing of of something similar to that 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 moved along in the '60s in Berkeley, as we've been talking about. So, listen, uh, Bruce, I had a ball, man. Let, let let let's let's do set two pretty soon. Is that does that sound good? Okay, sure. Yes, I enjoyed it. All right, man. Much love to you. Thank you, brother. I'll get this out to you later. All right, Jake. Great, man. We'll schedule the next one. Give me a buzz. All right, my man. Be good. You too. Later. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Just another day here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Bruce Barthol from the Mime Troupe and Country Joe and the Fish. Before that, we heard from Steve Kahn, an amazing guitar player. Uh, we'll be back uh, this week with a bevy of interviews. Until then, peace.